Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. The internet, it's home to just about anything you could possibly imagine, and that includes killers. Gambling is one of those risky things where even if you win, you just might lose. Chinese couple Kevin Yang and CC Zhou were new students temporarily living in the UK. Residing in a new country made it difficult to find employment. This led them to find alternative means of bringing in a steady income. Both students frequently engaged with online Chinese gamblers. Kevin also sought additional forms of cash by supplying Chinese students with fake education certificates and documents, enabling them to travel to England. It was estimated that the couple were easily earning about £233,000 within a matter of three years. Their ties with illegal online businesses would eventually run its course when they decided to offer their room up for rent. A man by the name of Guang Chao messaged the couple in hopes of renting out the additional space. Cece and Kevin obliged the man's Offer, no one would ever hear from the couple after their physical encounter with the man. It was two days later when friends had discovered the bodies of Cece and Kevin dead in their home. Cece was bound face down on her bed with a rag stuffed in her mouth and had been brutally hit multiple times in the head with a hammer until dead. The body of Kevin was later discovered in another room, having been fatally hit with a hammer to his face and head, leaving him unrecognizable. Guang Chao was soon apprehended and pled not guilty to the gruesome deaths of the couple. Breck Bednar was a 14-year-old boy who was described as a passionate kid who would do just about anything to please his friends and family. Over the course of a few months, he stumbled into the life of online gaming where he met Lewis Danes, a 19-year-old computer engineer. After some time, Breck didn't find any issue trusting his new online friend. It didn't take very long before the gaming sessions turned into more than just fun and games. His parents began noticing changes when his behavior became irrational. He isolated himself from his daily activities and wished to spend as much time online as possible. It became apparent that Breck's new friend was exerting influence and control over him. Lewis convinced Breck to stay the night at his flat, claiming it would help the both of them get acquainted with each other. Lewis sent out a final email to Breck, instructing him on how to convince his parents into letting him travel two hours away from home. This would be the final day that anyone would ever hear from Breck again. Police received a call from Lewis informing them that there was an altercation and only one of them had made it out alive. When police arrived, they discovered the gruesome scene of Breck's body taped up and stabbed multiple times in the neck. Hard drives were placed in water in order to delete any evidence that would tie back to Lewis. Sexual motives were also thought to have played a role in Breck's brutal murder. Lewis pled guilty to the murder of Breck and is now facing a minimum term of 25 years in prison. Utilizing the internet to fulfill sexual desires can be a risky business. 
Since the day they met, Miranda Barber and her husband Elliot knew they were destined to kill as companions. Miranda would post frequent ads on Craigslist in hopes of reaching out to men for sexual favors. With luck, three men responded to her ad, however, out of the three, only one man was interested enough to meet in person. Once establishing a meetup location at a parking lot, their victim offered Michelle $100 in exchange for sex in her vehicle. Miranda signaled her husband to come around the car and strangle the man while she proceeded to stab the victim 20 times. The man's body was later found in a residential backyard by police. Once tracing calls back to the couple's phone, police were able to investigate and make a formal arrest. Miranda later admitted in court that she was part of a satanic cult and thoroughly enjoyed killing dozens of people in her lifetime. That claim, however, was unverifiable. Michelle and Elliot pled guilty to the charge of second-degree murder. Both are currently awaiting trial. According to neighbors, John Edward Robinson was a kind-hearted family man. They were wrong. From a young age, John was no stranger to police in Kansas City. In 1969, he was arrested for forging credentials in order to obtain a technician job at a medical office. This escalated to his multiple arrests on security fraud, mail fraud, and check forgeries. Despite his criminal activity, he cultivated a second life, one that gave him the outward appearance of a happy family man. Eventually, he started his own company, which he used to lure young women. Promising great wages and new wardrobes, vulnerable girls would make their way to Kansas City in hopes of a fresh start. It wouldn't take long before each female turned up missing and would never be seen again. Soon after John's incarceration in 1993, he began making his way onto the internet, identifying himself as the Slave Master, looking for women interested in sexual relations. Eventually, John became a popular person on BDSM chat rooms and convinced three females to meet him in order to engage in bondage relationships. To no surprise, each woman would turn up missing. Continuing to lure women online, police were able to track John in 1999. Once obtaining search warrants to his land, authorities discovered the decaying bodies of two women found in chemical drums. These were believed to be women found in online chat rooms. With a long list of missing persons in Kansas, police were able to tie the disappearance of eight women to him. John Robinson is currently serving a life sentence without the chance for parole. A strong enough desire for attention can drive a person to do some pretty horrific things. This was the case of Lacey Spears, a full-time blogger who based her page on her five-year-old son battling an apparent mystery illness. Taking to social media, Lacey gained a fairly large amount of followers who wished to help her child. Things took a dark turn when she realized going the next step towards internet popularity meant ending her son's life. In a bizarre bid for attention, she proceeded to inject him with lethal amounts of salt through a tube she attached to his stomach while posting pictures on social media. Unfortunately, her child succumbed to sodium poisoning while in the hospital. Upon further investigation, police laid charges on the young mother. Lacey pled not guilty and was eventually sentenced to 20 years in prison for the second-degree murder of her son. Some people want to die, they just don't want to do it alone. 
Hiroshi Mayui was a Japanese man that suffered with an atypical sexual fetishism, which translated as, he could only feel sexual excitement by strangling others. In 2005, Hiroshi signed up for an online suicide club in order to lure his victims into taking their lives with him. The promise revolved around a suicide pact that consisted of sitting inside of a vehicle while lighting a charcoal burner. Once alone with his desired victim, he would choke them to death using his bare hands. Within a four-month period, Hiroshi was successful in convincing three victims into taking a suicide pact just before murdering them. Police were able to identify him as the man responsible for all three deaths in a rather ironic form of justice. Hiroshi was executed by hanging in Osaka, Japan in July of 2009. Online dating opens up countless opportunities. That doesn't mean you're going to want all of them. Jennifer Conyers was a social worker in Baltimore who was interested in online dating. It didn't take too long before she was matched with 38-year-old Monty Carter. Things didn't last very long when firefighters and police responded to a house fire at Jennifer's residence. Upon further investigation, police identified the body of a female lying face down and bound with electrical cords in her basement. Medical examiners were able to discover that after her date with Monty, the two decided to go up to a room where he beat her to death and dragged her body down to the basement. Covering up his tracks, he decided it was best to burn her body and the house. Fighting for an old relationship is understandable, but it's important not to let it go too far. This is something Paul Bristol learned the hard way when he discovered on social media that his ex-girlfriend, Camille, had moved on with her life. After their breakup, Camille wanted to start fresh and decided it was best to move out of the country to England. This was something that enraged her ex-boyfriend. He began stalking her Facebook profile until he came across her new boyfriend. Unable to accept the past, Paul flew from Trinidad all the way to England, where he eventually tracked down his ex and stabbed her multiple times in her home. Camille's sister stated to police that her sister had spotted Paul the day before her murder, where he was stalking her as she was driving back home from work. Paul Bristol is currently awaiting trial. You just never know who you can trust. William Melchert Dinkel, a former nurse, was convicted of assisting people in committing suicide over the internet in 2010. To him, playing doctor on the internet was something he enjoyed very much. His main objective was to target multiple people in chat rooms where he portrayed himself as a depressed female in her 20s. Once encouraging his victims, he would watch the acts unfold on webcam while explaining the best method to commit suicide. He would go on to assist in the killings of an 18-year-old university student who he tried to convince to hang her herself, but instead she jumped off a bridge, and a 32-year-old man who suffered a nervous breakdown and was told to hang himself in his home. And that's exactly what he did. It's believed William may have played a role in more suicides. In 2011, William was tracked down through previous chat room messages and was charged under a rarely used law which forbids anyone from assisting or encouraging suicide over the internet. He is now serving three years in prison. Expecting a baby should be one of the best moments in a mother's life. 
Just weeks before delivering her baby, Bobby Jo Stinnett was a dog breeder who frequently posted on message boards in order to sell her rat terrier puppies. Through the website, Bobby was introduced to Lisa Montgomery, who commonly went by her online persona, Darlene Fisher. It didn't take long before the two exchanged emails and developed a friendship. Lisa soon discovered that Bobby was expecting a child and was close to her due date. It was around this time when Lisa informed Bobby that she too was pregnant, something she ultimately lied about to gain her victim's trust. Lisa arranged to meet at Bobby's house, claiming to want to buy a rat terrier from the expecting mother. Upon meeting in person, Lisa made her way into the home quickly and began strangling Bobby with rope and immediately started cutting her belly open as she was unconscious, gruesomely tearing the premature baby out of Bobby. It was about an hour after the horrific assault when Bobby's mother discovered her daughter lying in a pool of her own blood. Bobby was pronounced dead when she arrived at the nearest hospital. Hours before Lisa's arrest, witnesses spotted Lisa in cafes, showing off the newborn with her husband to the public. Upon investigation, neuropsychologists discovered that Lisa suffered from severe pseudosiasis, a medical condition that causes a woman to falsely believe she is pregnant. In 2008, the jury involved in the trial recommended a death sentence after discovering that Lisa had planned the attack a while before initiating a meetup. The judge has since upheld the recommendation for Lisa Montgomery's death. People love a good villain. They really make a story come together, but that's usually best saved for comic books and movies. Real life villains, well, that's a whole different story. Elizabeth Bathory, a Hungarian countess from the 1500s who was so brutal she was known by many as the Blood Countess. And it was for good reason. It seemed Elizabeth had a thirst for blood, a deep longing for it. And in a position of such power, Elizabeth was able to get it. Elizabeth believed in the finer things in life, namely herself. She was infatuated with her own image and making sure that she looked beautiful. Elizabeth had many female servants, and some accounts from those days claim that Elizabeth would butcher those young girls and fill a tub with their blood, bathing herself in it to keep herself young. These young girls would come from all around to work in Elizabeth's castle of terror, considering how many open positions there were on a regular basis. Parents would send their daughters off with joy in their eyes, unaware of the torturous plans Elizabeth had in store for them, because she didn't just bleed the girls out, but would also beat them to death, freeze them slowly for her own amusement, and even bite chunks of their faces off. Girls died in such great numbers, very possibly exceeding 650, that Elizabeth to this day is seen as one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. Finally, sometime after all of the heinous torture and murders began, an investigation was launched and Elizabeth, along with a few accomplices, were found to be clearly guilty of the unthinkable acts. The king wished to see Elizabeth brought to trial, but to avoid any royal embarrassment, he was convinced to pursue a quieter punishment, and the blood countess was locked away under house arrest and was kept there until she died shortly after. The founding of a dynasty doesn't typically happen without bloodshed, and for Tamerlan, a man known also by the name Timur, there was a special joy taken in this fact. 
The Timurid dynasty was recognized for a number of cultural achievements, but Timur himself was known for his barbaric mannerisms and penchant for bloodthirsty cruelty. Timur particularly enjoyed forced suicide, where he would make soldiers and civilians jump off of large cliffs. With pleasure, he'd watch them plummet and collide with the ground to their deaths. He enjoyed this so much that he once sentenced over 2,000 captured soldiers to death in this exact way, their bodies piling up at the base of a large cliff. But this wasn't the only way he fulfilled his desire for death. He ordered the beheadings of tens of thousands of civilians and soldiers in numerous cities, his minions storming homes, tearing families out into the streets and decapitating them with their blades for no reason other than for his own sick enjoyment. Timur got such a kick out of the deaths that he had towers constructed out of the skulls of his fallen victims that he would often sit and admire. All in all, by the end of his reign, it is believed he contributed to the slaughter of millions of people. There was no doubt that there were many evil people involved in an atrocity like the Holocaust, but one person in particular was a rather unique case. Ilse Koch was the wife of Karl Koch, one of Adolf Hitler's most trusted men. While most wives in such a position would live lives away from the slaughter of millions, Ilsa wanted a more involved role in the genocide. So she joined the Nazi movement and became an SS overseer of the Buchenwald concentration camp with great excitement in her heart. And it was no wonder once Ilsa started to get into the swing of things. It was said that she'd often ride a horse into crowds of prisoners carrying a whip, which she used to whip the defenseless people so violently that sometimes they would die of their wounds. She had a careful eye, too, spotting specific prisoners who had nice or tattooed skin. According to a number of people from the camp, she loved their skin so much that she'd have them taken out of the general populace of the camp and killed. She'd then have their bodies skinned and their flesh tanned in order to make items for her, like lampshades or a handbag that she carried around with her. For her heinous acts, Ilsa was known as the Bitch of Buchenwald, and the Bitch eventually faced the consequences for her crimes. She was sentenced to life in prison. She had one son with her husband who had been sentenced to death. Their son killed himself after the war, possibly after realizing the true extent of his family's horrors. But Ilsa, being a rather promiscuous woman, managed to get pregnant by another man while in prison. This new son would grow up to have a desire to be with his mother, often visiting her in prison. But she lived a life trapped under immensely terrifying delusions that camp survivors would come to her cell to torture her for all she had done. And she killed herself in her cell at the age of 60, one night before her son was scheduled to visit. There aren't many people that don't know the name Dracula and all of the evil connotations behind it, thanks to author Bram Stoker. But some of that evil was once very, very real. And it was real in the form of Vlad III, also known as Vlad Dracula, and most notoriously known by the moniker of Vlad the Impaler, who was a 15th century ruler of Wallachia, a now historical region of Romania. Vlad was known well for his love of torturing, mutilating, and murdering people. Vlad was looked upon with high regard by many people for his militaristic finesse, but it was impossible to hide the terror that he had inflicted against so many people, including his own people. 
According to historical sources, Vlad had a very morbid methodology for executing people, sometimes through beheading them or ripping out their bowels, sometimes by boiling them or flaying their skin. But they didn't call him Vlad the Impaler for nothing because impaling was his most beloved form of murder. It's said he once impaled over 20,000 invading soldiers of the Ottoman Turks, and when the second wave of soldiers came, they witnessed a forest of the dead, all suspended in the air on gruesome bloody poles, and they promptly turned and retreated back home. It's believed Vlad would often eat within the forest of his impaled victims and would sometimes dip his bread in their blood. One account from Vlad's time warned of his cruelty, saying he let the children be roasted, those their mothers were forced to eat, and he cut off the breasts of women, those their husbands were forced to eat. After that, he had them all impaled. Vlad died fighting between December of 1476 and January of 1477. A companion in arms to the legendary Joan of Arc, it's hard to believe this French nobleman would be included in such a list, but he did more than enough to deserve his place. One thing true about Gilles de Ray was that he was a soldier worth praise. His military career was an impressive one, but Gilles had a very dark side the public didn't always know about. Apart from his illustrious reputation, a part of his mind was home to depravities like satanic worship, rape, and murder. Gilles began luring in peasant boys to work at his castle as pages, and the horrors that awaited them weren't realized until it was far too late. Gilles would aggressively sexually assault the boys and then either slice their throats or bash them in the neck with a club until their necks snapped. But every now and again, Gilles enjoyed cutting off their heads or their limbs. Sometimes he'd even pick up their severed heads, blood still dripping, and kiss them. Eventually, Gilles' terror was brought to an end after an investigation was launched against him after he had attacked a priest over a land dispute. In the end, he admitted to killing as many as 140 children, though it's believed there were more. For this, he was hanged and then burned in October of 1440. A killer of children is always seen as one of the absolute worst types of people. Teaching children to avoid strangers is a direct result of the horrific things some people would do to them. Tsutomo Miyazaki was a mild-mannered man. He was well put together and polite, a seemingly nice part of any community. A friend one would have little trouble enjoying the company of. But that was only during the day. At night after work, Tsutomu had a much different way of thinking. His brain flipped a switch, and just like that, he was a predator. Tsutomu would stalk little girls like they were his prey, selecting ones he saw fit to kill in order to fulfill his unimaginably dark desires. Between August of 1988 and June of 1989, Tsutomu abducted four girls, all between the ages of four and seven, and committed the unthinkable. Tsutomu would take the girls into his car, kill them, and then engage in sexual acts with their bodies. From there, he would sometimes cannibalize parts of their bodies, such as their hands, and drink their blood even after they had begun decomposing. Tsutomu took a great level of pride in what he did to these children, so much that he would sometimes send photos of the children he had taken, along with teeth and remains like ground-up bones, to the worried parents, confirming and exceeding their worst possible fears and morbidly taunting them. 
Eventually, Sutomo was captured when he tried to sexually assault a young girl with his camera in front of her father. For his horrific acts, he was sentenced to death and died by hanging on June 17, 2008. Sutomo believed after he was captured that the murders were an act of benevolence. A thirst for blood, an unstable mind, and a lot of power are often a recipe for disaster. But when you add in a horrific torture device, things can get even worse. Phalaris of Akragos was the leader of what is today known as Agrigento, a city in Sicily from approximately 570 to 554 BC. And he was known as an effective leader who brought a lot of prosperity to his people. His rise to power came swiftly, but some people weren't comfortable with this, especially a legendary poet by the name of Stesichorus. It didn't stop Phalaris from achieving his power, and he soon became known not as a good leader, but a tyrant. Phalaris is perhaps best known for his execution method, referred to as the Brazen Bull. Designed by a Greek artist named Perilos, this device was a large metal bull statue that was hollow in the belly and had tubes running from the inner chamber to the mouth and nose of the bull. The chamber had a door that would allow people to be shoved inside and then locked in. A fire was then lit beneath the bull and the person inside roasted alive. The tubes were designed as an acoustic device that would convert the tortured screams of a victim into what would sound like a bellowing bull. Clearly for the entertainment of all. Perilos believed he'd be rewarded for gifting Phalaris with such a device, but that wasn't the case. Though Phalaris was impressed and utilized the brazen bull whenever he had the opportunity, he wanted to see if it would really work as Perilos claimed. So he had Perilos, much to his dismay, thrown inside and the fire was promptly lit. Perilos began to cook and scream, and Phalaris was delighted when the brazen bull worked as advertised. He was so delighted that he had Perilos pulled out, burned, but alive. This didn't last long, however, as Phalaris had Perilos thrown off of a cliff to his death right afterwards. While the brazen bull was the torment he was most known for, he was also known to cannibalize people's newborn babies, among many other atrocities. Eventually, he was overthrown and, in a form of poetic justice, was executed in his very own brazen bull. A leader's ability to inflict terror on an enemy is a crucial factor. The threat of power is sometimes more effective than the use of power. For one Chinese statesman, this reached a particularly petrifying level. King Gojian was a man fueled by revenge. When Gojian's father was killed, an enemy kingdom launched a vicious attack and defeated Gojian's kingdom and took him captive. He lived in captivity until eventually proving himself subservient to the king. Eventually, the king released Gojian and allowed him to return home under the assumption that he would continue to be a loyal servant. But he had much different plans in mind. Gojian built his strength and waited for the perfect opportunity to launch an attack on the king that crushed his kingdom ten years prior. Gojian's former captor, furious by the betrayal, sent his forces to meet with Gojians in battle, a battle that would prove to be anything but conventional. From the lines of Gojian's soldiers emerged the first wave of sorts. A line of men stepped into the battlefield, staring intently at the enemy forces before drawing out their blades, screaming and cutting their own throats, spilling blood all over the grass and themselves before dropping dead. After that, another wave was sent, and those men howled and cut their throats as well. And after that, another was sent. 
The enemy soldiers stood in disbelief and horror at what they were witnessing. Soldiers cutting their own throats for seemingly no reason. How were they supposed to fight an enemy so willing to die? But as they contemplated, Gojian had more forces approaching from behind the enemy. And now with soldiers on both sides, the enemy forces were overwhelmed as Gojian's soldiers crashed in and crushed them. It was a gruesome and horrific victory from a king who operated in terror. The Spanish Inquisition. It was formed with the purpose of finding Jews and Muslims who had claimed to have converted to Catholicism, but were suspected of being insincere in their conversion. Once found, these people would be tortured, and in many cases, brutally murdered. From 1483 to 1498, a man by the name of Tomás de Torquemada was the head of the Spanish Inquisition, presiding over it with almighty authority. And under this authority, the tribunal submitted many seen as non-believers or heretics to extensive forms of torture in order to force a confession. If they believed you were guilty and they got their hands on you, you'd likely be confessing to whatever they wished you to, whether you were truly guilty of it or not. Some of the torture methods included waterboarding, being stretched on a rack, and being hung by your wrists until your arms dislocated. A slow, grueling torture. Tomas took it upon himself to reorganize the Inquisition, giving them more rights to torture over even the slightest of offenses. Tomas was also a rather intolerant man, like so many in those days. He ordered the expulsion of thousands of Muslims, Jews, and even black people because he believed they tainted Spain's spiritual purity. If you converted to Catholicism, you were possibly okay to stay, but even the most minor slip-ups could bring scrutiny against you and you'd soon be tortured and likely killed. Over 2,000 people were brutally murdered during Tomas' time presiding over the ruthless tribunal. He especially enjoyed beheading people or burning them alive. So many of us have stayed at hotels, staying in a room surrounded by strangers, but for H.H. Holmes' hotel, other tenants were the least of your worries. H.H. Holmes was known as one of the most iconic serial killers ever to have lived. He's also known as one of the first in American history. He was a smart man who pursued an education in medicine with his dark aspirations at the forefront of his mind. He was immensely skillful when it came to working with bodies. Holmes thought of a wonderful opportunity for himself and eventually built his large three-story hotel in Chicago, which became known after his terror had ended as the Murder Castle. During its construction, he would fire and hire numerous contractors so that no one team could know everything about the building, which was designed to trap and murder just about anyone who stayed the night that Holmes wanted dead. The hotel was a labyrinth of confusion. 51 doorways opened into brick walls. 100 rooms didn't have windows. Some of the staircases led right into the ceiling. It would have been nearly impossible to try and escape, if you even had the chance at all. Like straight out of a horror movie, some of the rooms had peepholes in the walls that Holmes would use to watch visitors. Some came with trap doors and soundproofing. Other rooms were connected to gas lines that Holmes would use to asphyxiate people while they slept. During the 1893 World's Fair, Holmes had even more opportunity to kill many people, usually young women, and perform horrific experiments on their bodies in his torture chamber beneath his hotel. 
Some people we would drop into a chamber and leave to starve to death or die of thirst, screaming when no one could hear them as they survived for days in agony. Holmes made good money doing what he did. He'd often skin the bodies and clean their skeletons, using his connections in the field of medicine to sell the skeletons off and earn a rather pretty penny. Eventually, Holmes was caught and convicted of a few murders, though he confessed to many more. But due to the fact that Holmes was so good at disposing bodies, either by selling their skeletons or burning them to ashes in his incinerator, authorities didn't have much to go on other than what they could easily prove. All in all, Holmes confessed to 27 murders, but it's believed the real count could have been as high as 250. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.